to The Queerness, an LGBTQ podcast produced by San Francisco Pride from our studios overlooking the most beautiful city in the galaxy. I'm your host, Peter Astrid Kane. They and them are the pronouns I use. And today, I'm positively enraptured to announce that our guest is none other than Imani Rupert Gordon, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, a national legal organization committed to advancing the civil and human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and their families through litigation, legislation, policy, and public education. She is also a lover of cats, guitars, and sisters. Imani, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Peter Astrid, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start off all the way at the national level by discussing the biggest piece of LGBTQ legislation in years, the Equality Act. NCLR is part of a broad spectrum of organizations that has applauded its reintroduction in Congress. How are you feeling about what might be in it and the possibility that it might become law? That is a wonderful question and one that I'm super excited about. Um, So yes, the Equality Act has um, a chance of passing a really good shot of passing this year. And this is really, really exciting for us. You know, we've been trying to pass LGBTQ anti-discrimination legislation since I think it was 1974, I believe. And so every year we're trying to do this so that we can protect our our, uh, communities. And we finally stand a chance of doing this. And this would be amazing. Most people support LGBTQ equality, over 70% of folks, and that's bipartisan, um, believe that LGBTQ people should be protected under the law, should be treated with respect. And the Equality Act would do that. And that would be something really amazing. The other thing is that some folks don't actually um, know that LGBTQ people don't currently have any federal protections. Right now, in many states, and most states across the, the country, um, you can still uh, lose your housing for being LGBTQ after the Bostock decision that changed with employment. But there are a lot of ways that our community is simply not protected by law. I mean, this is our best shot at doing this. We've never been at a place where um, it looked it looked better. Not that it's it will be easy at all, but this we stand a really good shot of doing this. And so that would be just really exciting and some of the most uh, I, uh, fun and exciting work that we're doing right now. You know, you said... I think on Twitter that it builds on the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I think that that's true, the Equality Act. But I also suspect, I'm going to go out on a limb here, that you might be playing to an audience of nine with that remark. Because last year in Bostock v. Clayton County, which was one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's final decisions on the court, the Supreme Court said 6-3 that gender identity and gender expression are protected under the same groundbreaking law. Is that what you're hoping for? The Bostock decision that happened last summer was a really big one because this is where the Supreme Court determined that um, uh, sex discrimination would include LGBTQ people. And this is huge because at the time, we didn't know if the court would come back and say, oh, it only includes um, LGBTQ people or that it only includes trans people. But we know that actually it should. This is an argument we've used in the courts forever because you actually cannot talk about sexual orientation or gender identity without talking about sex or talking about gender. In the law, they use sex, like uh, often we use gender, but you can't even talk about them. And so, and that's what the court said, that because you cannot actually talk about sexual orientation or gender identity without talking about sex, that it has to be included uh, in these protections. And so the Bostock decision 
was an incredibly important decision to provide protections. The other thing is that we like these things to make to um, make sense. So if we're talking about Title VII, we also want this to extend. We, like if we're talking about employment, we want this to extend to um, housing. We want this to extend to other um, uh, public accommodations. But even with as strong and how amazing that is, you know, there are still limits to that decision that, um, you know, companies have to have at least 15 employees. And there are other things that make this harder. And the fact that you have to sue, you can still get fired for being LGBTQ. It would just mean that you would have to go to court. And, you know, with this decision, um, you would, you know, most likely win, but you would have to go through the process. And for many folks, that's simply unacceptable that you can't, get a lawyer, pay for a lawyer, go through this process of suing someone for something you should be entitled to anyway. And so um, that is something that is a wonderful thing that that's happened, but it's not everything. And the Equality Act would go further than that by actually providing federal protections in all sorts of public accommodation. So it also will include things like um, like ride shares. Um, you know, um, it includes more than LGBTQ people. It also um, extends protections for women and people of color. Um, as a black woman, there are places that in a store I can still be asked to leave simply for being a black person. You know, and we don't and we don't think about that because it doesn't come up as much. But for it doesn't come up for me as much. But we know that this does come up for a lot of folks. And so the Equality Act provides. LGBTQ protections, but it also provides other protections. And these are protections that that folks should actually have. You know, this isn't just something like, ah, do we really need these sort of things? If you think that, often it's because you live in a state where you have other protections. So for um, us, you know, living in California, we have a great deal of protections. And so as an LGBTQ person, um, I, I, I feel relatively safe. And But in other parts of the country, um, folks don't have those same protections. I think you just made a, a number of really excellent points. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's something like 22 states afford LGBTQ people kind of comprehensive protection, which obviously is certainly not, you know, a majority of the country. And I, I think sometimes we forget that, you know, quote unquote, red states are actually home to millions of blue voters and millions of LGBTQ people. You know, sometimes in California, I think people get a little bit glib thinking like, oh, you know, Utah or Alabama, it's just like a right wing place for the right wing people. But it's not true. I mean, there are so many people there who really, yeah, they can just be fired tomorrow, evicted tomorrow. And this would just be groundbreaking yeah. to make sure for, you know, for their safety. And that's, I mean, that's super, it's super important. I think that when we talk about LGBTQ communities, a lot of times folks really just think about um, large communities with a great deal of protections. LGBTQ people, we are absolutely everywhere. And we are in the places that have very few protections and have very few supports. And um, this would provide some greatly needed support to everyone in our community. Absolutely. What is your read on the Biden administration? A few weeks shy of the meaningless, but still symbolically important first 100 days threshold. Are you, are you pleased? Is it what you expected? Yeah, you know, I've been really pleased with the Biden administration. It started when we saw, well, honestly, he made a commitment to be have the most um, inclusive uh uh, administration. And he's really been held true to that. We've seen uh, folks of color. We've seen people from the LGBTQ community. Um, that's been something that's been really symbolic. And when you think about it, 
when our um, administration reflects us, that is often the first time that we're able to recognize that, okay, the solutions coming from here, they actually might be made for me and for my community. And that's something that's really important to us. Immediately, he um, started and had, you know, I mean, I believe it was almost 50 executive actions in the first two weeks or something. That was something that was also really great, you know, and they were really amazing things. Thinking about um, climate justice, um, uh, that's something that uh, that's really important to us. Having a plan for uh, COVID-19, that's something that disproportionately affects LGBTQ people and people of color. So thinking about intersections of identity and what that looks like now, you know, um, how readily available the vaccine is uh, for folks. And that's something that's really important because before this, we had no idea what that was going to look like. And, you know, um, NCLR, along with our partners at um, GLAD, we were the first to challenge um, the Trump administration's transgender military ban. Um, that was something that was really important to us, and it took a great deal of our time. And it was important because the military holds the, the most number of jobs. Like when we think, so when we think about employment, when we're keeping trans folks from being able to be part of the military, this is actually a question about access that we're getting to. And so that was a really big um, part of the work that we've been doing for the last two or three years. And then within the first week, he immediately, you know, signed uh, an executive um, order and just ended that. There is always going to be, we're always going to be pushing our administration to do more, to go further. And that's something that's, that's always going to be important. And it's our job. It's for sure. And, you know, I, just to come back to what you were saying about transgender people in the military, you know, both you yourself and NCLR have long been vocal about trans rights and one current flashpoint in particular, the right of trans youth to transition medically and also to play sports. Mm-hmm. Although Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, actually vetoed a brutally transphobic bill the other day that that state's legislature went on to override it. What we're seeing in more than a dozen other states is legislation rocketing through these conservative dominated state governments acting as if, you know, trans teenagers represent a threat to the nation tantamount to COVID. You know, it's tempting to call this merely like a culture war distraction, but would you would you say there's more to it than that? Exactly. These bills are absolutely cruel and they're misguided. They keep trans kids from obviously participating in sports and um, receiving medical care, but it also um, keeps trans folks from the benefits of, you know, most of us have had experiences playing sports and that has has something to, to do with our leadership. I know that that's true for me. These bills are going to make it not possible for transgender young people to be supported by their parents in receiving the medical care that um, that they absolutely need. And this is just horrible. It's just, it's mean and it's cruel. And it's one of the worst attacks that we've had to the LGBTQ community. And it's happening to kids. This is under the guise that we're protecting women's sports, but we're not protecting women's sports. Trans kids not playing sports has not ever been a problem. It's not now, and it hasn't been a problem, or folks would already know about it. These are the same groups that falsely said that marriage equality would destroy marriage or that using restrooms that are consistent with your gender identity would um, create some sort of violence in restrooms. And we know that the opposite is true. When we are actually talking about protecting women, I think this is important. There are actual, legitimate, and well-documented ways that hurt women when talking about sports. And if 
people are truly concerned about women's sports, then listen to women. Correct the pay inequity. There is a lack of funding at every level of sports for women and girls. Look at the coverage of women's sports and the recognition that women receive when playing sports. These are things that women actually say are problems. Trans folks playing sports, that is not a problem. That has never been a problem or women would have identified this as, as, as a problem and it's not. It is mean. Like, yeah. it, it's mean. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I just have to call out a little bit of hypocrisy here, right? Like, people who claim they're so worried about the sanctity of women's sports, which, let's be clear, for a lot of these conservative dudes, is something that they had long dismissed as totally unimportant, right? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of them watch the WNBA very religiously. And if I can be a little bit awful and ventriloquize them, they have often denigrated women's sports as, you know, full of lesbians anyway. And now they're ignoring what they said because it's important to keep trans women out. It's like, come on. Exactly. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, this is not helping anyone. NCLR is an advocacy organization, right? But it also, at heart, it is a crusading law firm. Has it been difficult to reorient your work after a change in administrations, especially one this dramatic, you know, Trump-Pence to Biden-Harris? <laughs> that is a question I haven't gotten yet. Has it been difficult? No, it's been amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been it's been so much fun. Like I said before, you know, we were spending so much time working on um, the uh, Trump's transgender m- military ban, and then it just went away, and we can concentrate on other things. You know, um, spending our time doing work, um, working on uh, the Equality Act. You know, we also do a great deal of work with uh, conversion therapy um, with our Born Perfect program, which is something that's that's also really really in, um, important. Uh, we've been able to. You know, we're working to help transform the child welfare system so that it better supports LGBTQ people and low income people and people of color, because we know that these communities are often left out, but have a negative experience with the child welfare system. And so we're able to be more intersectional, be more inclusive, work on things that that we really need to spend time with. And um, these things that really shouldn't be taking our time. I love that they don't have to anymore. So it hasn't been I mean, this has been amazing. This has been, it's been fun. It's the work that we want to do. I I don't mean to keep things so lofty at the national level. You know, what is one thing that NCLR is working on um, that's specific to the Bay Area? Sure. So, um, at the start of COVID, one of the things that we realized, so, you know, I was just, I was just talking about systems, you know, and so often the people that are caught up in systems are people that experience oppression at multiple levels, LGBTQ people, young people, older adults, people of color, folks with, uh, with lower incomes are living in poverty. So whenever something changes, it, this highlights what the experiences of, of folks that experience oppression at multiple levels. So one of the things that happened during COVID is that, uh, we recognize, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of things happened and highlighted a lot of things during COVID. But one of the things that we were able to do is work with um, some, a group of California youth justice advocates to create statewide policies and procedures to protect incarcerated young people, um, especially LGBTQ youth, because we know they're disproportionately um, impacted by the juvenile justice system. Um, we worked uh with the governor's office, the chief justice of the California Supreme Court, um, the chief probation officers in California, and we were able to um, implement a set of guidelines that were um, specific for COVID-19 that was able to keep young people safer. And this also resulted in a 30% um, 
decrease in the first week of the people that were actually incarcerated. And this is huge for young folks because, you know, they wouldn't, you know, if we're able to get folks out of these systems, then everyone's better for it. And so this reduction is keeping folks safer, but it's also um, creating better futures for these young people. You yourself have been named the 2021 Sex Education Trailblazer by an organization called SECUS, Sex Ed for Social Change. What did you do to get that honor? You know, they they highlighted the work that we do at NCLR. And, you know, a lot of the um, the work that we do, there's intersections here, but a lot of the work we do, too, are these no promo homo laws, you know, um, uh, and those are the, the laws that say that you can't um, talk about LGBTQ experiences in schools. And so we know that that makes it difficult for um, young people to have comprehensive um, sexual education, which we know that that's important. Um, sometimes it keeps folks from having like gay straight alliances or um, in their schools or ways that they can uh, interact with with other LGBTQ people, um, but also learning about our history in schools. And so um, this affects a lot of our community. And um, by getting rid of um, these laws, it makes it safer and it makes it better for folks to be able to see with their identities that we've always been here. We've absolutely always been here. And we've had amazing contributions to this world. I think our work to um, get rid of some of these um, these laws uh, was something that was really important to them because we know it's something that's really important to us. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, you definitely deserve that. Thank I have you. one final question for you. Sure. Some months ago, you and your wife had a bit of a dispute over Brandy versus Monica. I want to ask you, who won? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I love that. Um, well, you know, honestly, I have always been... I've, I've always been team Monica. I've always mm. been team Monica and, and my wife has always been team Brandy. So, you know, I will say that after this, it was really great. We, we had our own and I was um, sharing some songs with my wife. She was sharing some Brandy songs with me. And I will say that I, I very much enjoyed the versus battle and, you know, and have a whole new outlook on Brandy. I will, I will say that. Um, I still think the, the boy was probably Monica's, but um but I do have a I have a whole new outlook for Brandy. So it was a draw and it brought you closer together, which means win-win, right? Everybody wants. Exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. This has been The Queerness, a production of San Francisco Pride, conceived and co-produced by my ever-astonishing colleagues, Chris, RJB, and Shannon. This episode featured National Center for Lesbian Rights Executive Director, Imani Rupert Gordon. Our theme music, which I am honestly just loving more and more, was composed by La Frida. We strongly encourage you to like and subscribe to us, which helps us increase the queerness's visibility on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. And we are all about queer visibility around here. I'm your sickening host, Peter Astrid Kane, reminding you to be safe, but stay dangerous. See you next time.